Today, Londoners have woken up to a very different city. Over half of America is on lockdown. As many of us must stay at home as possible. Hello, and welcome back to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, analysis and solutions for business in the wake of COVID-19 from Oxford University's Said Business School. I'm Peter Tufano, Professor of Finance and the Dean here at Oxford Said, and your host. Coming up in this episode, we'll be asking, how has the pandemic hit the real estate market and real estate businesses? Episode 6, Post-COVID-19 Scenarios for the Real Estate Industry. The global pandemic has forced us to rethink the role of physical space in our lives. As we'll be hearing in this episode, it's caused many firms to have an existential rethink about the role of the office. Changes in how we live, how we work, how we travel could also impact the blend of real estate in towns and cities. How has the crisis impacted tenants and landlords differently? Are there long-term changes in the sector that will be accelerated or created by the pandemic? Will any good come of this crisis? To explore this and more, we've convened a panel of extraordinary leaders from the real estate industry. Andrew Vaughn is the CEO of Redevco, which has a multi-billion euro portfolio of European retail, residential, office, and mixed-use space. Ronan Giorno is Senior Vice President for Enterprise and Workplace at WeWork, one of the world's best-known brands in the global business space. Rob Cookson is Global Head of Real Estate at Facebook, one of the 10 largest companies in the world and a highly creative user of space. And Sabina Kellyan is Global Chief Economist at CBRE Global Investors, which is one of the world's top 10 global real estate investment managers. Sabina is also an associate fellow here at Said Business School. In the chair is Andrew Baum, professor of practice at Said Business School and leader of the Oxford Future of Real Estate Initiative. So Sabina, let's kick off with you. In your work with CBRE Global Investors, I would imagine that You've been reimagining COVID and post-COVID scenarios on a monthly basis since February or March. And what's your latest base case? Could you take us through that? Yeah, so the, the base case is for a Nike swoosh recovery. Everyone has a shape, don't they? Which is that, you know, we, we stumble through the second half of this year, kind of getting back to work, but not quite until there's a public health resolution, hopefully by this time next year. Then you have a pretty decent recovery the next year or so, and then it tapers down again. And that there is crucially a small permanent loss of output. And I think a, a downside to that would be just a, a worse public health scenario. Um, longer term, it looks slightly different. So the real um, surprise has been this incredible, successful mass behavioral experiment in working from home for remote for office workers and how far this really forces some reassessment of what's going on in the office sector. And if you look at the listed uh, stock market, and particularly in the US, that seems to signal that offices are the new, the new malls with real structural change to be faced. So I think that's the biggest surprise or the biggest change, provocative change that's come with COVID. What's the future of office? And to a certain extent, student housing, senior living, but that's where our focus is in terms of research. Okay, so it's fair enough to say that it's difficult for any of us to, to make forecasts. I remember I, the last time I made forecasts was 2016 when I forecast that 
uh, Donald Trump couldn't win the US election and Britain <laughs> couldn't possibly vote for Brexit and Leicester City couldn't win the Premier League. And I got uh, around a solid hat trick there of fails. So I've sort of stopped forecasting and I started thinking a bit more in, in terms of scenarios. So in, in, in the sort of the red scenario, which you, know, you have a severe financial impact in 2020, 2021, you have a permanent disruption of office use, airlines go bust, loads of retailers are out of business, you get social discontent. Where, where would you put your money, Sabina, if, if that was the, the outcome? Where, where's the safest place to put your money in real estate? Well, you know, sort of core income producing real estate, I think looks quite good in a financial crisis. If, if offices are to be disrupted, think where is that space use going to go? Is it residential? In which case single family rented housing edge of town might look good as people need more resi space. Is it going to be suburban office? That's an interesting question in the US where they're talking about hub and spoke offices. I think anything to do with digital infrastructure data centers. The problem is that the quantum's not necessarily big enough to absorb all the capital. And obviously logistics and, and food storage still looks good because apparently we're all now going to shift permanently to doing more of our shop, including groceries online. Um, and I would be looking at some resilience to global supply chain disruption in where I was putting my logistics. Right. OK, thank you. Andrew Vaughan, if I turn to you and perhaps you could tell me a little about about your role and how difficult it is being a leader through this crisis and tell us a bit about what Redevco is doing at the moment. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think being a leader in this period is is the time when you you sort of fall back to some extent on all the work you've done in the previous years. And, and what I mean by that is, I think, company culture, which um, is, is for us incredibly important. And we spend an awful lot of time and energy on it. And, and, you know, in terms of onboarding people in the right way, we have a very senior team that have been with the company for a long time. And, and just culture is really important to us. And I think it just suddenly pays off you, you don't you don't do it because you think it'll pay off when suddenly you, you can't see each other for, for eight ten weeks or so but it just pays off so and, and funny enough I've had more internal contact than I would normally have so we have daily calls with our managing we have basically we have 200 people in seven offices around Europe in headlines and so I wouldn't normally see them all on a very regular basis but I've had you know we kicked off with daily calls with all our managing directors our portfolio directors every other week I did a Skype call with the whole company. Um, and so in a sense, I've had way more internal contact than normal. I think what, what suffered for me a little bit is, is perhaps my external contacts because I've not been out to get out and see people. So I think in terms of, you know, what you do as a running a business, you, you, you just have to hope you've put all the building blocks in place uh, in, in the previous period, because this is when you really you take the benefit of, of what you've done, let's say. Yeah, we were on a, what I call yesterday, Andrew, weren't we, where the, the phrase social capital was yeah. used. Uh, one of our colleagues mentioned yeah. the idea that he'd built or his company had built social capital. And there's a, there's a limit to how long you can live off that. You know, you need to rebuild it at some point. Do you agree with that? Totally. And, and it's and I was talking to colleagues is because uh, particularly my sort of senior team, we've worked together for so long D doing, you know, Skype or, or Zoom or Teams calls is, is easy. We know each other so well. But as that goes on, you bring new people into the business, you've got some younger people maybe or, or whatever age that haven't been in the company that long and it's harder to, to sort of really bring them in. And so it, it works for a crisis, but I don't think any of us want this to go on forever. But, but for sure, we'll change some of our working practices and I think we'll probably come on to that later. But uh, for, for one eye, as you know, I, I live in Hampshire in the UK and I work in Amsterdam. So 
I reckon I've saved about 15 hours a week, but that's a, another topic. So, so Rob, tell, tell us about how has your life changed in the last months? Has it changed at all? Yeah, it has. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, um, I lead a, a, a global team. And so I'm very used to sort of doing, you know, lots of video conference with, with Asia and with, with the Americas and, and even with colleagues in Europe as well. But I think, you know, real estate, as we all know, is a very tangible thing. It's about, you know, it's about going and seeing buildings and places and meeting people. And, and so clearly that side of things has, has, has changed dramatically. A little bit like Andrew's experience as well. I think, you know, in these times as a leader, you really have to make sure you're very connected with your team and with your people and, and that you're, you know, every, every people react to this, these situations very differently and have very different situations in which they're working from in their home environments. So really making sure that, you know, you've got even more than ever connected with, with teams and colleagues has been really important. So I also have have been sort of probably much more internally focused than I would have been uh, in the past. Yeah, great, Rob. Thank you. So, so Ronan, is this the perfect time for for WeWork, or is it is it an awful time for WeWork? You know, how does the the whole flex proposition survive through this? And you know, is it is it good for for, for flex working? I think it's the perfect storm for flex working. You know, we just concluded uh, an exercise of interviewing um, sixty nine global heads of real estate. So one-on-one over the past four weeks. And what we asked them is not only how they dealt with the crisis, how they were planning the re-entry to that envelope we call the office, but more importantly, what are the predictions? What are the ramifications once we get through the transition, 12 months out, 18 months out? And how do they view the whole world of work and enabling the workforce? And, you know, they unanimously, Everyone has said we're going to accelerate, you know, the way we embrace flex. We are going to continue to optimize our portfolios where we already started to do it. Um, But what we're going to do is leverage data to offer employees greater choice. Because I think the biggest change management that we've ever experienced has just happened. And mindsets at board level have shifted. Entire companies have been virtualized. And now they say, do we want to go back to the old world or do we want to go back to a new norm where people are trusted to work anytime, anywhere, any place and given far greater choice, travel a lot less, commute a lot less and, and have the choice. When do you work from home? When do you work from a third place that is flex? Could be local, you just buy, you cycle there or you could go into the city center, but opt to go into you know, any one of the operators. So I, I, think it's a, I think it's a perfect storm. There are a lot of unknowns, and the unknown is how long will this transition take and how much people will overcome the fear of using public transportation and what will be the impact of the high unemployment that we see in, in you know, the major countries. But I do believe I'm an optimist. I, I think this will be the perfect storm and, and you know, time will tell. So, Ronan, if we take the UK as an example, is it an obvious conclusion that every small town, Winchester, Reading, Wallingford, every town needs some flex office space? Is that, is that the future? And if so, who's going to provide that? I have a strong belief that the answer will be yes. And I think um, we're already beginning to see it. I, I attended a, a roundtable last week where we had some operators from Brighton and Cardiff all sorts of, of places where perhaps WeWork is not there yet and others are not there in scale. 
So I do think that we will see um, mushrooming of some small operators across the country. I will also see, I think, the reuse of existing spaces, perhaps old pubs, um, perhaps churches, other spaces that have been literally dying because nobody has been using those commuter towns. And, and I think it, it would be very, hopefully, a regeneration of these local communities and local economies because people will make choices. If I can work from my local village two days a week, why commute into, into London? Right? Or why commute into Manchester? Now, I think it will take time. Hopefully, in the next 24 months, we will witness that. Um, but we're continuing to grow as a business across the UK. Um, there's a lot of press about our assessment of the portfolio, but we're going to continue and grow where it makes sense. Right. I mean, if, if there are any students or um, uh, budding entrepreneurs listening to this, there's a business idea right there. And how, how do you scale a sort of a local co-working operation? How do you, what's your revenue model and how do you make this work? Because it's the demand side is, is certainly going to be there, isn't it? So, Sabina, is it, is it therefore unavoidable to, to sort of project a decline in the demand for office space? I mean, if, if people are going to be working from home some of the time, that means that offices are going to be less occupied. Is that, is that going to come through in the economics of, of rent? Or don't you see that happening? It depends what the office is for. So if the office, you know, 10 years ago was for routine work, using technology you didn't have in your home back in the days when not everyone had a PC or a fax machine back even further, then for sure you can use look at one of those densification charts and see them getting more and more packed in. And now maybe, you know, that is a, a lack of demand for office because we're doing through two or three days at home. But if you reinvent the office as somewhere where you create and transmit corporate values and where you have amazing collaborative spaces and meeting spaces for your clients, Yes, you might need less of that routine space, you know, the cubicles, the open plan office space, but you might need more of the space that provides what offices now have as their USP, because the USP of an office is not giving me a desk with a computer and an internet connection anymore. So we're doing a lot of work right now um, with CBRE EA on scenario testing, which city centres are maybe more at risk for losing office demand because they are more catering to tech companies and people who can more easily work remotely and what that kind of those two offsetting impacts of maybe a halt to that densification drive but more working from home mean and it's really exciting because I feel that this really is an existential rethinking of what the office is for and it doesn't necessarily mean less demand for me but it certainly means different demand and therefore developers meeting that change demand and a lot of the current office stock may be being functionally obsolescent because it's just too expensive to retrofit. So, so Rob, Rob as, a, as a procurer of office space, you know, I've got to turn to you now. I mean, how, how do you see this working? Do you, do you see Facebook's, you know, assuming whatever your growth strategy is for number of employees, do you see your space per employee increasing, reducing? I mean, do you see your office space being empty on a Friday? And if so, what are you going to do with it? You know, what's your, what's your strategy here? Yeah, I mean, you know, we announced in, in May, Mark announced in May, um, a long-term commitment to remote working. Um, and so, you know, um, yes, I do see more of our staff working remotely. You know, as pre-COVID, the vast majority of our workforce would come into the office and, and you know, have a desk in the office. Uh, actually, I think it's really exciting because I think as a number of us have said, you know, the um, you know, over time, there'll be more choices to where people can live and work, and that will 
help grow and, and, and diversify the workforce, particularly kind of accessing remote talent pools and, and, and more diverse talent pools as well. And actually, you know, from, from our perspective, our, you know, our platforms and, you know, like um, Workplace and our devices like Portal and Oculus were actually built for situations like this where, um, you know, where economic opportunity doesn't depend um, purely on geography. But, you know, that said, I think it's, it, it is, you know, for, at least from my perspective, way too early to speculate about the kind of implications for our office footprint on the, on the one hand, logically, yes, we'll need fewer desks if more people work remotely. But I think there are a number of factors at play from, for us. Um, you know, we will be taking a pretty measured approach to our kind of long-term real estate planning. Um, and, you know, to what Sabrina said, you know, we're really thinking through the role that the office will play in the future, clearly for those that are 100% in the office, those um, that work remotely and, and potentially for those that work, you know, more flexibly. Um, maybe throw in a challenge. So how far do we think this idea of working on your local high street changes if the arbitrage that a lot of us enjoy is eradicated? So a lot of us work in a city, live in a more rural or suburban environment because it's cheaper, get a city wage and a rural housing cost. If employers realise they can not only just outsource the property cost but also pay you less, yeah. does that change that willingness to work from the high street? So, so Sabrina, may, maybe I can chime in on that specific point. Uh, in these conversations, we spoke to a number of the big investment banks who, because of COVID, have almost had to witness how regulations have been put on pause. They have thousands of people trading from their bedrooms. And now at board level, the conversation is, when we go back to the new norm, do we need to continue to operate these huge trading floors in Manhattan or in Canary Wharf? Could we actually shift those teams to suburbia? Much lower cost locations, better business resiliency, better quality of life. And in a way, over time, perhaps lower salaries. So, you know, the, the giants are thinking through it and the giants are challenging themselves as to what the new norm, and we're talking probably 12 to 36 months out, um, what the new norm would look like. And, and this is to aspects of office environment that we never thought would be touched, right? An investment bank trading floor. So I, I think we will see correction. I think we'll see change. But I think the most fundamental, as Rob said, it's, it's back to the human. It's going to become much more of a human-centric conversation. What does it take to offer people the right work-life integration and choice? And then how do we support that from a physical environment and technological perspective? The future of the urban center is an issue we'll come back to. But first, we're going to turn to the British High Street. Before the crisis, this was widely in decline across the UK. Will we see a rethink of the high street with a mix of social, retail, and residential? And if so, who's going to drive this change? Here's Andrew Vaughn, the CEO for Devco. Well, the obvious answer is I really hope so, um, because it was needed before and it was gonna, it's going to be needed even more afterwards. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, in very simple terms, you know, we've believed for many, many years that there's, there's way too much retail space. Uh, and I'm talking across Europe, but there's even in the UK, it's even more acute. There's too much retail space, um, uh, but there is an acute shortage of good residential space. Mm. So it, it shouldn't take a genius uh, <laughs> to work out what needs to happen. 
And and I think uh, I agree with I think the point that Ronan made earlier, or perhaps Sabina. But you know, lo local local serviced offices, and I mean, so I live in Winchester. You mentioned it. You know, a couple of thousand people a day commute from Winchester. If just five or ten percent of those decide to work from home, you've already got a pretty decent population sitting there that can save themselves three you know three and a half hour round trip, and that's another use that can be brought into city centres. So. I think there are so many more uses that can come into the city centre that maybe haven't been there or well represented. But the trouble is, the biggest problem and the reason that people ended up investing in shopping centres is you don't, one person typically doesn't control the high street. So it, it needs a collaborative effort. And there aren't many high streets where that happens. There are some in the bigger, you know, in the West End of London and, and so on. But business improvement districts, but it doesn't happen generally on a, on a smaller scale. So I think the, the obvious answer is yes, of course, it, it will be hit very hard. I think a lot of high streets will be hit even harder, but there's a clear demand for alternative uses. It just needs a bit of cre creativity. It needs the planners on side and it needs obviously land owners and building owners to be prepared to invest in their, in their assets. Yeah. So I'm just switching on to the, the landlord-tenant issue, you know, so a, a lot of the press, you know, the BBC included, have been all over the, um, you know, the, the, the impact on tenants. And there are many, many businesses out there that are in real trouble and they are doing their absolute best and trying to trade through this or not able to trade through this. But what about landlords? Are, are landlords just rich people who can afford to miss their rent collection or is it more complex than that? Andrew and I are the landlords, aren't I'll we? Um, Andrew, put you under less pressure. Let's switch to Sabina, who represents um, a more broad base of owners. <laughs> and, and, you know, the vast majority of capital that we represent is pensions, and it's it's my parents, right? It's, it's, it's normal people, doctors, nurses, who've retired teachers, public work, public sector workers who rely on that income, and they don't want a raise to return, they just want something reliable. So... Yeah, what has been really fascinating to me in this crisis has been the absolute political um, protection of the tenant at the expense of the landlord compared to the last time, say, the 70s crisis, when with hyperinflation, all the protection, certainly in the UK, in terms of new legislation, was to protect the landlord and the, and the income that we then gave out to our underlying investors. So that has been a complete change. And what not necessarily concerns me, but I think is something we really need to bear in mind as landlords is as we come out of this crisis, which has been quite rightly mitigated with, you know, vast fiscal policy um, changes that will have to be paid for through taxation. And we sadly in real estate sit on an asset class, which, you know, it's hard to move or to hide. It's there. And I suspect that the tax burden on all of us, but particularly those of us in real estate is going to rise. So. As landlords, you know, we we are just trying to provide cash flows typically for underlying investors who are small scale and rely partly on that dividend money. So yeah. that's a bit of a concern. And it makes you recalculate the security and the nature of those cash flows, I think, going forward. And it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, London has a reputation of, of being an international centre for capital. And, and it's uh, one of the two real estate capitals of the world, probably with New York in terms of international capital flows. And one of the reasons why... London is such a great place, you know, physically much, much more attractive than it was 30 years ago. Service quality, food, everything is better. The, the physical environment's better. And it's partly because a lot of international capitals come in. And that international capital has come in because the courts have been protective of property rights. 
so you can impose your property rights. And it's very ironic, isn't it, that a Conservative government has start to, started to weaken those property rights in 2020. Um, so, you know, it is, it is interesting, and I, I take your point completely. We've got to see this. Um, it will be very interesting if this isn't reversed quite quickly. We shall see. Well, I think the nature of that, the nature of the lease, right, that's never going back. We're never going to get those 25, 30-year leases on retail with no breaks. We're never going to, you know, and that just, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means that a lot of the stuff we were taught when we were at university about the nature of what real estate is doing in a portfolio relative to equities and fixed income has altered. And yeah. that will make it more or less attractive depending on where you are in the cycle and what your risk return profile is. But it is a change yeah. and that's fine, but it, it, sh it shouldn't be underestimated. Yeah, so you know, offices, offices as hospitality and and the WeWork role in all of this. But yeah. Rob, Rob, what do, do you see Facebook having a, a different policy towards its real estate? I mean, are you natural? Uh, are you natural signers of leases? Would you do you see yourself becoming freeholders? I mean, how do you how do you plan to see your portfolio? I think in terms of the you know our approach to to leasing, I'm not. I think we'll just flexibility is going to be the key for us. I think, you know, there's, there's, um, it has been anyway in terms of at least over the, the course of the last um, five, 10 years, the, the, the rate at which we've grown has been unpredictable. So we really wanted to have flexibility in terms of ability to, to scale. But I, I can see, um, you know, for us, you know, just that sort of flexibility in terms of wanting, you know, shorter leases, more optionality, perhaps, focusing on some of you know more the core of what we know we need and then maybe having a portion of other space being a portion of space being flex amenity events type space being more flexible um, or expecting you know more expectation of, of landlords and developers to provide more of that those are the, the things that I can see not not actually just for us but more generally across the industry I can see trends. I was, I was talking to a, talking to a developer last week, and they said that they were they were trying to launch a lease which had a sort of a a, a basic rent per square meter, which was sort of a lower below market a below market rent per square meter with a a turnover element, a top up based on the occupancy of the building. You know, do, do you see I that? Think, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure whether I sort of would I, I'm not for necessary for us specifically, but I can see that being um, particularly if you're going to be providing some of those others. You know, the landlords are going to be providing. Some of those other services i can see the rationale for that for sure yeah yeah great so andrew have you been collecting rents i mean have, what's your experience been with your your tenants have they actually been paying you some of them i guess is the answer yeah no we're we're significantly down so we we've got to give you an idea we have around around 1500 shops in in the portfolio around around europe Mid-March, towards the back end of March, when we're in the sort of uh, most extreme, we had 1,317 of them were fully closed. Um, so, uh, you know, vast majority were closed. The ones that were open, the food, mainly food, pharmacies and, and, and others uh, that were allowed to. So, um, but today, actually, we've got a thousand shops open today. So we've got about 460 closed. Uh, they're mainly, the closed ones are mainly in the UK and Spain. So the rest of the continent is a bit more open than, than here in Spain. Um, no, we are absolutely not collecting full rent. Uh, we've got a policy um, that we, we actually negotiate individually. We try and give help where we can to some of the more independents uh, and the, the, those that we would call it say a bit more financially vulnerable. Um, uh, you know, we have uh, some good discussions with some of the bigger players. To, bit you, to answer your question a 
of earlier of you know is it all 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 bad on the landlord side and all good on the tenant side of course it's not exactly as Sabina says often the big institutional landlords are representing pension holders and a lot of the big clothing companies are bigger than us way bigger than us so and we're not small so it's so it's so much more complex and often owned by private equity funds that have leveraged them to the hilt and taken all the cash out of the business and yeah we've got all of that as well where you know it's uh, all the money's been drawn out and it's so who's going to disappear well both landlords and tenants those that are over uh, over leveraged and undercapitalized and a yeah. poor brand have any of us seen any tenants gaming the system or any landlords yeah. gaming the system definitely <laughs> yeah um so in general the sort of the retail um tenants have genuinely been troubled and the hospitality sector tenants but we did have you know some very blue chip tenants in very large cbd offices that clearly had no issue in paying the rent but you know there was ambiguous language from the chancellor in the uk about sort of whether you'd be able to enforce the non-payment of rent and so why wouldn't you have a go and ask if you could get rent relief for a quarter or two so i, I mean i don't blame them but it was fascinating to see how quickly that sort of gamification came in so you know, but it's the equivalent of us as landlords when we're investing going for a cheeky price chip, right? So I don't blame anyone because we'd try the same, wouldn't we? So, but it was interesting to see incredibly healthy tenants who had no reason not to pay the rent really trying hard not to. Coming up in this final part of the episode, the panel discusses the virtualization of work and what that means for traditional city centers. But first, What's the knock-on effect of the pandemic on domestic housing and house prices if more people are working remotely and not commuting into city centers? Are we sitting on a future price crash in the center of London as people and jobs move out? Sabina Kellyan, Global Chief Economist at CBRE Global Investors. I mean, the the youngsters aren't going to leave, are they? Because they want everything that London provides, which is other people to meet social opportunities. But I actually think, if anything, the chance of the price correction is more in places where I live, right? So places in Surrey, Hampshire, but sort of home counties where if the salaries adjust to what should be a non-London lifestyle, there are lots of places in England where the house prices are inflated by city salaries. And if you look at the underlying land value, like there's, there's no reason unless you're next to a football training ground for them to be that high. So I, I suspect they're more vulnerable, ultimately. Rob, could, could we expect to see a Facebook office in Newcastle within the next 10 years or Birmingham? Or One of the things we are looking at is remote workers and where this is going to be focused on the US where, you know, the, there may be sort of future hubs, as it were, but what form exactly that takes. I'm not necessarily sure it's going to be places where people go to work, but maybe there's, it's places where people go to collaborate and create and so forth. But as I said, it's very... It's early days on that yet, and so that's we need to do some you know, more work on that. But there's no no immediate plans for offices in those remote locations uh, right now. Okay, um, I'm sure people in Birmingham would object to being called a remote location with HS2. <laughs> you know, who, who knows? Um, okay, so let's switch on to the um, the suburbanisation issue then, Ronan. What what is your belief? You're an optimist, and and you know I suspect an idealist as well. So um, what do you think? should happen and what do you think will happen so i you know i think this is a fascinating conversation um if we go back in time and just you know go back to the terrorism attacks in new york uh london madrid um there was a lot of a lot of debate at the time you know are we going to see you know the migration of people out of city centers to suburbia to the countryside because it's become such a hotspot for terrorism 
and, and history has actually proven us wrong, right? We've seen London as a very vibrant place that people want to come and work and play and socialize uh, and learn. Uh, we've seen this in every major city, and, and that's very much has been also the focus of WeWork. That's how the portfolio has, has been built over the last, um, the last five years. Um, but I, you know, with that, what have we seen in the big cities? We've seen you know, the cost of housing going through the roof, and especially when we have over 50% of the workforce being you know, youngsters, millennials, that's, that has become a problem. People having to share houses, people having to live in co-living, just in order to have this job in Facebook, for example. So hopefully, whatever correction we see in the new norm, um, I don't think it's the end of the city. I think the cities will continue to be vibrant, and I think everybody will go back to the heart of every city, but perhaps in a more measured way. Perhaps it will be two days a week or three days a week, and, and the local villages and local towns will thrive on the back of that. Um, and hopefully, as, as Sabina said, there might be some correction in, in house prices, which is not such a bad idea. If you have a few less people traveling by train, it would be less dense. So hopefully the quality of that commute will go up. The optimist in me says, um, you know, this correction is, is good. It's good for humanity. It's, it's going to be giving us a better work-life experience, hopefully. But it's going to go through some bumps, right? I think we're all, we're all very conscious of that. It's going to take time before we see the new norm. Can I add to that, Andrew? Sure, please. Yeah, so I fully agree. I'm based in Amsterdam. I'm there pretty much every week. Uh, and I, I stay over just at a, at a hotel. So, and I've been doing that for like 13 years. And I've, I've witnessed the, my Amsterdam colleagues complaining about the overheating market in Amsterdam. You know, they, they complain about all the tourists. They can't complain about all the Airbnb. They complain about, uh, you know, just, just too many people. And it's driven out the Amsterdamers and, and, it, and it's such a it's such a livable city it's such a great city to live in that I think actually so I fully agree I, I think actually the, the, the bit of the heat might come out of the big cities you know, a bit, bit less people in there and a bit less people on the tube and the trains and uh, and the restaurants are maybe not all full so that there might be a bit of a knock-on impact on you know asset values and footfall and rents and all that stuff but actually, I think in the end, th these cities might just benefit from being just a little bit more livable. I mean, I, I lived in London for 25 years. I absolutely loved it. I left about uh, 15 years ago. I now live in, in a very small place relatively, but I actually quite like it because it's just a bit more livable. And I, and I think actually some of the big cities could benefit from that. It's a huge macroeconomic impact though, isn't there? If you take sort of 10% of activity out of the big major capital cities and move it to suburban or rural cities where, you know, that activity generates less wealth just because it's cheaper. Um, it does imply a difference in how your economy is constructed in some good ways, lessens the dependence on the big cities, but it is ultimately, just to be provocative, a loss of wealth, isn't it? Um, I would say that, I would say they wouldn't, I don't think they take away wealth. I think they spread it. I think they spread it. And actually, in a sense, you know, London probably is, is to, a bit too dominant, right, for the, from the UK economy point of view. Spreading a little bit of that wealth out might not be a bad thing. And really successful urban environments are often very, very diverse. And there's a real strong mixture of, of, of different activities and different amenities and different uses taking place in the same place, in a 24-hour place. And I think some of the some areas of, of UK and world cities are very dominated by one particular use. And if there's a rebalancing of that, a you know, Rona mentioned that 
lack of residential, if, if that, if, 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 if the, some of that rebalancing contributes to a more diverse, uh, increased diversity of uses in city centre environments, then there is a potential for, you know, a, an improvement of the environment like your Amsterdam um, example, Andrew. So I think they're, they're also, the optimist in me says that is a, is a possible positive outcome of, of, of what's happening as well. I think it's pie in the sky, the idea that people will not be coming to an urban centre to have a meeting with their colleagues. And, and you know, the way in which human beings become confident with each other is by physically meeting each other. And, the, you know, promotion, bonuses is going to be associated with the, this, you know, getting to trust people in these physical locations. So I don't, I don't see people stopping doing that. Andrew, maybe I can, maybe I can just build on that um, and, and maybe take us outside of the UK context. Um, if we if we go back in time, over the past 20 years, um, many companies began to virtualize the way they operate. Skype and WebEx and Telepresence, you know, uh, two of them were made by my previous employer, Cisco. And, and what we're doing now, I, I experienced 15 plus years ago, you know, working across 80 different countries using Telepresence. So this is not new. The only difference is that this time it's been enforced on the entire population, office population of the planet. Um, but what's interesting is we virtualized work with huge technology, but very quickly we saw the renaissance of co-working spaces, right, of the flex. And in essence, whether you look at WeWork or you look at any of our competitors, what, what are these organizations actually created? They created communities. They created beautifully designed places with good coffee where people congregate. People had the need to physically come together, not only colleagues with colleagues, but also have, having this kind of ad hoc serendipity of meeting strangers in what is viewed as a relatively safe environment. And, and the, in many ways, the co-working revolution, I think, recreated the coffee houses of Amsterdam and London of, of the 1700s, where business was done. We've seen, we've seen the full cycle, but the, the virtualization of work has already began 20 years ago. Yeah. So some companies are in a moment of, aha, oh my God, it's possible. And now the mindsets have to shift, management practices have to shift, but, but for many, you know, uh, it isn't. But what we have seen is that we have this inherent need to, to physically spend time together. So as much as we adopt all these technologies, I think we're gonna see the return to physically coming together, but hopefully with more choice. I like to think that the future of work is now here, right? That, that it's becoming a lot more human-centric. Um, it's going to be a lot more data-driven, not just anecdotal. Um, and it's going to offer humans choice. Employers are going to have to trust their people a hell of a lot more. And well-being, health, and experience will, will be really at the top of the agenda of corporations. And, and I think that we will see um, you know, different business models supporting that demand from traditional landlords, from co-working operators, um, perhaps the public sector, I think we're going to see different, different solutions to meet this new norm that hopefully we'll be entering into. My thanks to Ronan Giorno, Sabina Kalian, Andrew Vaughn, Rob Cookson, and Professor Andrew Baum. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from the University of Oxford's Side Business School. For more about the series, visit OxfordAnswers.org. And thanks for listening.